The Macro View, Episode 30. You're listening to the number one daily podcast focused on spreading the logic of liberty. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Alright, so we've got another great episode for you tonight in part three of our five-part series on understanding financial markets. Now, before we dive into the topic tonight, I didn't get a chance last night to discuss the often asserted zero-sum game fallacy as it relates to investing. So I want to get to that tonight as it's a, it's a very important fallacy to debunk and to understand where it comes from and why it's incorrect before we dive into uh, tonight's topic, which is complex securities and derivatives. So the zero-sum game fallacy as it relates to financial markets goes something like this. For one person to win in investing, another has to lose. So it's riddled with falsehoods. First off, on a one-to-one exchange in the primary market, where an investor gives or invests in an entrepreneurial enterprise, the investor does not lose their money at the company's gain. If the company goes under, the entrepreneur or the founder, who typically owns more equity than any other single shareholder, loses as well. They lose the time they've spent. If they receive a salary, they lose that. They lose their reputation. A loss to the investor is a loss to the company as well. Now, on the secondary market, where this is typically asserted, if on the secondary market, in the centralized exchange where shareholders can trade shares that they own for cash, if one person sells... They aren't necessarily losing. Now, of course, it's true. Someone could sell shares for a net loss, but this is not inherently the case in markets. People have different time preferences and different subjective values. If a seller sells, it's because they prefer the cash now to the expected future value of the stock that they're selling. And for the buyer, it's vice versa. Now, one may say, well, what about the broker? The broker gets paid a commission on both the primary or initial offering and on the secondary market when executing trades. Isn't that a win for the broker and a loss for the investor? we got to remember, the broker sinks a lot of capital into setting up the infrastructure to execute trades or to be able to build the relationships necessary to sell shares in a company that's going to list their shares on the exchange for the first time. They provide a value-added service to investors, both in the secondary and the primary market, and they're compensated for this service. It could be a win for the broker, If the broker attracts enough clients to execute trades through them in such a manner that they earn a profit, then sure, yeah, it's a a win for them. If they don't, they go out of business, so it could be a loss as well. In the trading between two parties, the buyer doesn't win or lose at the seller's expense or gain, and neither, neither does the seller win or lose. Now, one could make an error. They could be giving up additional upside or exiting their investment earlier uh, you know, than, than they need to in order to, to maintain a gain or to achieve a gain, you know, the buyer could possibly hold on to the shares that they bought and generate a gain or a loss as well. It is possible that they both gain, though. The seller could have bought two years earlier, for example, received an acceptable rate of return, and feel the prospects in other investments are better at the time. The buyer could buy, hold for another two years, and receive a gain as well. Ultimately, when someone gains or suffers a loss in the market for investments, they do so at their own consequence. No one else's gain or loss. With that said, it's time to get into the real topic for tonight. And that topic is the one of complex securities and derivatives. So if you remember 
On the first episode, we discussed savings, we discussed lending, the role of the bank, and a little bit about debt and interest. On the second episode, we expanded upon debt and interest. We introduced a scenario uh, where, where it's more of an equity investment as opposed to a debt investment, and we discussed the differences between debt and equity. So we're going to dive into the topic of complex securities, that is securities in between debt and equity, and we're in, as well as structured products, and we're going to dive into derivatives right after I share this quick resource that all my listeners really do need to be made aware of. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawman. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western civilization history courses, freedom's progress, the history of political thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. All right, everyone, we're back. So complex securities and derivatives. So let's start things off with the, uh, with the security side of things. There are times when an investor would prefer to have some of the lower risk benefits of debt, you know, a fixed stream of payments, higher priority in the event of bankruptcy, but also would prefer to gain some of the upside that could come in the event of success like equity owners receive. In this case, they would prefer what we often refer to in the business as a mezzanine security, something that's in between a bond and a share of stock in the company regarding the company in question. So typically the two main types of mezzanine securities come in the form of convertible debt or a convertible bond or preferred equity. In the case of a convertible bond, holders of such a security receive a fixed interest rate. Sometimes the interest rate is paid in cash. Sometimes it accrues in in-kind or in a higher and compounding value of additional convertible bond securities. Further, sometimes the bond is what's called callable, meaning it can be paid back in full at the whim of the company that owes it. Or in the event that the value of the equity is such that it exceeds or is equal to what we call at parity with the full value of the convertible bond. That's all worked out in the details of the, the contract of the convertible bond. So convertible bond holders, usually, usually based on some catalyst event, but also sometimes at the whim of the holder or the owner, not the company, but the owner, the holder of the bond can convert the value of their bonds, principal and accrued interest into an equivalent value of equity. 
Oftentimes, convertible bonds carry what's called a valuation cap and, con- and or they convert at a discount. So what do each of these mean? A valuation cap is the maximum value at which the bond will convert to equity. So let's use an example because that can be a kind of a convoluted phrase for those of you that, that aren't familiar with some of these terms. So let's say you purchase a convertible bond in ABC company and the, the bond's $1,000. Now, the, let's say that the convertible bond, for the sake of this example, has a valuation cap of $100,000. What this means is that the principal amount of the bond can convert to no less, the $1,000 you originally invested, can convert to no less than 1% of the equity in the company when it does convert. Or in other words, the maximum valuation of the company that applies to this particular bond is $100,000. Now, if the bond has an 8% interest rate and that interest has accrued for one full year, the convertible bond will convert to no less than 1.08% of the equity in the company. If the valuation of the company at the convert event or date is less than $100,000, then the value of the principal and the interest of the bond combined is divided by the valuation of the company at the event or at the date. And that'll determine what percentage ownership the convertible bondholder converts into equity. The point behind a convertible bond is that it is technically debt. So in the event of bankruptcy, it gets paid back before equity holders do. And also if the interest is paid in cash, the convertible bondholder recoups some of the value of the investment before it converts, which also lowers the risk of the investor. Now that's the essence of a convertible bond. So what about preferred equity? Before I get into preferred equity, I want to just mention the discount when I mentioned discount. So let's say that it has a 30% discount using the same example as above. You made a thousand dollar investment. There's a 30% discount and the, at the event, the conversion event or the conversion date, the company's worth $100,000. Well, in that case, your convertible bond would convert at $100,000 times 1 minus 0.3 or at $100,000 times 0.7 or $70,000. So your convertible bond would be able to convert into no, essentially, if there's a valuation cap as well, no less than 1.4%, because you're also getting the, the or approximately 1.4%. It's actually about 1.43%. So essentially, what you're doing is, is you're saying, okay, well, for taking this initial risk being earlier on, I want to convert at a valuation that's either a little bit or significantly lower than the valuation of the company on the conversion date. That's, that's all the discount rate is. So what about preferred equity, right? So preferred equity, as the name suggests, receives preference in the event of bankruptcy to what we would call common equity, which is typically what shares of stock are. In early stage companies, the preferred equity typically also comes with a convertible clause. So preferred equity typically also receives a fixed dividend payment. Again, this can either be in cash or in kind, but for larger companies or publicly, publicly listed companies, it's typically in cash. In the earlier stage companies where you can convert to common equity, where you can convert your preferred shares to common equity, typically it accrues in, in kind. 
So one of the differences between preferred equity and common equity is that it does pay this fixed dividend. And one of the differences between preferred equity and bonds, aside from being a little bit lower on the on the uh, the capital structure of a firm, is that it provides a perpetual dividend. So in other words, there's no maturity date. The only way the, the, the dividends stop getting paid are if you either sell the preferred equity or the company buys the preferred equity back. So preferred equity of larger firms, of exchange-listed firms, is typically not convertible, but it, it, it typically trades at a discount or premium to a fixed value or the initial value that it's offered at, typically $1,000 per share, and it maintains the fixed dividend payment. Preferred equity is lower on the capital structure of a firm than straight debt or convertible debt, but is higher than common equity or what, you know, what we would call common equity, which is pure equity or shares of stock. Again, due to the fixed dividend payment, if paid in cash, it provides investors a percentage of their capital investment back every year, which lowers the risk of the investment. Convertible preferred equity, often like a convertible bond, carries a valuation cap. It also can be callable and can be forced to convert based on certain catalyst events. So now we've got a good understanding of convertible bonds and preferred equity. Now I do have one more resource that I've got to share with my listeners, but after we get back from this quick message, we're going to discuss derivatives and then securitized instruments. So we'll be right back. All right. So derivatives, the, uh, the evil, evil derivatives. So derivatives are, are pretty much the most uh, misunderstood financial instruments available. Derivatives are often bundled together, but there are uh, you know in, in conversation. But there are many many different types of derivative contracts. The most commonly used derivative products are futures and options. Futures, like the name implies, allow traders to buy or sell a certain commodity or asset at a future date. So futures originated as a way for farmers, miners, and, and other natural resource producers to lock in a price for their production for the sale of the goods that they produce, or for food manufacturers, for metals, uh, and, and natural resource refineries to lock in a price for the commodities that they need to purchase. So financial futures also emerged as a risk management tool for investors. So just like how... <clears throat> A farmer might want to lock in the price now. An investor who may not want to sell right now, maybe for tax purposes or whatever the reason may be, can lock in the price using financial futures. Options, as the name implies, give buyers the option to buy or sell a specific security or commodity at a future date at a certain price. To purchase an option, you pay a small fraction of the value of the what's called the underlying or the asset on which you're buying the option to lock in that option. Now, if the underlying security or commodity that you purchased the option on at what's known as the expiration date is higher in the case of a call option or lower in the case of a put option than what is called the strike price or the price at which the option becomes in the money, then you end up making a, a profit off of that. 
So there are two different types of options contracts, which I just, I just kind of mentioned and brushed over. There's calls and there's puts. Calls are options to buy and puts are options to sell. Now, you do not sell a put to offset a call option. You also don't buy a put to offset a call option. They're two different, two different types of contracts. You can either buy or sell a call option or you can buy or sell a put option. A call option is sold to offset a call option that has been bought and the same with a put option. The seller of an option, often called the writer, receives a premium. And if the option expires out of the money for a call option below the strike price, then the writer of the option gets to keep the premium. They don't owe anything. You know, for a put option, when it expires, the underlying, basically, for a call option, in order for it to be in the money, when it expires, it needs to, the underlying security needs to be above the strike price, or at least at the strike price. And for a put option, it's the opposite. So, the for a put option, if you purchase a put option at a certain strike price, it has to be, the underlying security has to be below the strike price in order for it to be in the money. So again, I mentioned the seller is often called the option writer. So in the event that the option that they write is not in the money, is out of the money, then the option writer gets to keep the premium. If not, they, they have to pay the difference between the value of the underlying at expiration and the strike price. So for example, if you buy a call option on ABC company at a strike price of 100, the current price is 90 and the option expires in 30 days. If the price on the 30th day is 110, the writer of the call option, the seller of the call option would owe the buyer $10. Typically options are for blocks of 100, uh, 100 units of the underlying. So technically in this case, they'd owe $1,000 be 10 times 100. <clears throat> so now we understand option contracts, but what about the infamous credit default swaps? So many, uh, many uh, mainstream media members and politicians, uh, you know, many of the mainstream economists like to blame the calamity in 2008 on credit default swaps, which is kind of just ridiculous. A credit default swap, the technically not insurance, is much like insurance. Credit default swaps, despite popular belief, were not unregulated. Some, in fact, many credit default swaps traded on exchanges and were regulated at least by the exchange. And today, swaps in general, as there are different types of swaps other than just credit default swaps, are regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission or the CFTC and their approved, quote-unquote, self-regulatory organization, the NFA, or the National Futures Association. But even prior to the rules on swaps that emerged under Dodd-Frank giving the CFTC jurisdiction, there was a large, international, and quite effective private regulatory organization called the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, or ISDA. This group regulated swap contracts. So credit default swaps will be the focus of our discussion 
regarding swaps as they're the most commonly referred to type of swap. But credit default swaps, as the name somewhat imp implies, allow investors in bonds, corporate bonds, government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and other debt or credit instruments to swap default risk with other investors. To explain the credit default swap, I think it would be prudent for us to go back to our Crusoe economics uh, thought experiment from the first episode. So you remember Crusoe met Friday, he lent Friday 15 days worth of fish and coconuts and expected or was promised to be paid back 30 days worth of goodies from Friday's farm that he was building and that he needed the, the fish that he borrowed to maintain his sustenance while he completed. So let's say that Crusoe, some days into the deal, but before being fully paid back, decides he thinks that there's a chance Friday will default on the loan. That is, he thinks that Friday may not pay the loan back or won't pay it back in full. Maybe it's because Crusoe has a change of heart and decides he doesn't trust Friday as much as he thought he did. Maybe it's because he believes there's a storm of brewing out in the distance. You know, he's seen a lot of birds that have been migrating to his island from a distant island for whatever reason. Crusoe thinks that there's a good probability that he won't be paid back. So let's also say that Crusoe knows another villager from Friday's village, a productive villager that has some savings. The other villager knows Friday. And, he, and this other villager knows that Friday's hard at work and that the farm is in the process of being built. So Crusoe offers this villager one fish a day. Now remember, three fish, three fish is a day's worth of sustenance in this example. And Crusoe expects to be paid back in farm produce three fish's worth for 30 days beginning on the 15th day. It's technically plus, you know, three fish plus three coconuts worth. So Crusoe offers this vill other villager one fish and you know, one coconut per day, let's say. So, so it's equal, you know, fish and coconut. But one fish and one coconut per day for 20 days. If the villager will promise to pay Crusoe any unpaid principal balance of the loan that Crusoe made to Friday. Only in the event that Friday defaults on the loan. That is that if Friday doesn't pay back the loan or pays in only in part um, and doesn't pay it back in full. In the event of default, the villager will pay Crusoe, this third villager will pay Crusoe the remaining balance of the loan. The villager knowing Friday and trusting Friday's project, uh, you know, trusting that it'll be a success, agrees to the deal. He figures, you know, it's a fish a day with little no, or no risk on his behalf. Then let's assume Crusoe was correct. There is a storm brewing in the distance, and it's a bad one. The storm comes, and it destroys Friday's farm. Friday suffers a total loss and has only paid three days' worth of the loan back. The remaining principal balance, since that's what they agreed to, not including interest, which is what Crusoe and this third villager agreed to, is 12 days worth of fish and coconuts or equivalent related farm goodies. To make it easy, let's just say they agreed to settle in fish and coconuts. The villager that Crusoe paid the one fish and one coconut now owes Crusoe 36 fish and 36 coconut. This could be settled all at once or maybe it's settled over the remaining period of the loan term or over even an extended period. Those details are typically worked out contract to contract in the terms of the contract. In the event that Crusoe is wrong, 
Friday completes the project and fully pays back the loan, principal and interest, in that event, then the villager gets to keep the 20 coconuts and 20 fish that Crusoe paid to swap the risk of default. Now, credit default swaps against corporate debt, government debt, and other credit instruments are exactly the same. And in fact, are often negotiated requiring significant collateral be posted to secure for the purposes of settlement. The fact of the matter is that swap contracts actually worked tremendously well during the crisis. All the swaps out in the market were netted by ISDA. And there was very little default on CDS obligations or credit default swap obligations when all the bankruptcies began to take place. Credit default swaps did their job. Prudent firms that used CDSs and required proper collateral to be posted were able to settle the CDS fairly, orderly, and quickly. And they mitigated the risk of default that they had exposure to. Now, we often hear crazy numbers thrown around, something like $400 trillion worth of CDS obligations at the height of the housing bubble. So I want to say, first off, the $400 trillion number, if you, if you go and do some research, you'll see that that comes from a summing or adding together both sides of the CDS. That is the CDS buyer and the CDS writer or seller. That's inaccurate. It's one contract and there's only one side that's obligated in the event of default. The other side's obligated to make fixed payments over a period of time or all at once. But the other side is the only side that's the, the seller of the CDS is the only side that's obligated in the, in the event of default. Now, if you were to take the total value of all debts, public and private at the height of the housing bubble, it exceeded $250 trillion. This means that there was still, using their summing method, $100 trillion that had no CDS obligations tied to it. It's about $50 trillion using proper math. So now that we understand credit default swaps and we understand that they didn't cause the financial crisis or create some sort of domino effect, and that they actually did their job quite well and mitigated the risk of folks that were using them or firms that were using them. What about mortgage-backed securities? We often hear about mortgage-backed securities. So mortgage-backed securities are nothing but a diversified package of mortgage loans wrapped into a single security, as the name sort of suggests. So they're similar to like, you could think of it like a, a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund, but just mortgage bonds. Really, for Apple-to-Apple -Apple comparisons, because mortgage-backed securities are not what's called open-ended, you can't just create more based on the same loans. Mortgage-backed securities are more akin to what are known as closed-end funds. So in all of these structures, multiple different securities are packaged into one for the sake of diversification. Now, prime mortgage-backed securities particularly prime fixed-rate mortgage-backed securities, had extremely low default rates during the financial crisis. The default rates were around 1%. Now, prime adjustable-rate mortgages had slightly higher, about 2%, which really is technically a 100% higher default rate. Subprime mortgage-backed securities, that is high-risk mortgage-backed securities, the, the mortgage-backed securities that were filled with 
junk mortgages of people who had you know, very low credit scores and didn't put a lot of money down, etc. They had higher default rates. But even then, for the fixed rate subprime mortgages, the MBSs had, a to- had default rates that were like 3%. It wasn't crazy. It was the subprime adjustable rate mortgages that had extremely high default rates. Making it worse off, most of these subprime adjustable rate mortgage-backed securities were guaranteed by a federal government, by our federal government, by the United States federal government, which means that they were insured. They were insured by the federal government. Now, technically, they were guaranteed by a federal government-sponsored entity, but being a federal government-sponsored entity means that you have the full faith and credit. You have the backing of the full faith and credit of the U.S. federal government. The result of this was that pension funds and banks bought these things and held them. Particularly, banks held them on their balance sheet as what's known as top-tier capital or tier one capital. They held them equivalently to as if it was a treasury security. And why not? The government said that they were insuring them, just like they insure the payments of treasuries, supposedly. So there are also uh, what are known as collateralized debt obligations or CDOs. You may have heard this term as well. Now, these are similar to MBSs, but consist of different types of debt. They could be just straight up consumer debt. They could be business debt. They could be auto loans. And these CDOs are organized into different slices and they're called tranches. And they range from first paid to first loss. So as I mentioned, these are these tranches, as they're called, the riskier they are, investors buy and, and accept that risk and get paid a higher rate of interest rate in the meantime to compensate them for the risk. So first paid tranches of CDOs, again, had very low default rate. They were lower risk and they also offered lower interest rates. The first loss tranches the bottom tranche of a CDO, they had much higher default rates. They carried a lot higher risk and they offered a higher interest rate to compensate for such. And the buyers of these CDOs knew what they were getting into. They knew that they would be the first to take a loss in the event of a bankruptcy. So lastly, we have structured notes and other structured financial instruments of which CDOs and mortgage-backed securities are specific variances of. But unfortunately, we are running out of time here. So I believe what I'm going to do is I'm going to include in tomorrow night's episode where we talk about the role of losses, the bankruptcy process, and the so-called distressed asset market. I think we're going to open up with a brief discussion on different types of structured products. I also would like to touch briefly tomorrow night on the private markets, that is non-exchange traded markets, such as private equity market, the non-REIT or at least unlisted re- and, and private real estate equity markets. We've talked a lot about debt, which a lot of times coincides with real estate. I'd like to talk a little bit about the infrastructure and real asset markets, which are often private markets, and also talk about hedge funds and other alternative investments at the open of tomorrow night's show. But for now, I, I think that's going to be it for, for part three, because we're, we're really running a little bit over the typical time that we run on, uh, on this show. But don't forget, we've got two more episodes 
in this five-part series. So I hope everybody enjoyed. I hope you'll tune in for tomorrow night's episode, and I hope you'll tune in for Friday night's episode. If you're not listening to tonight's episode from our show page, I really do suggest you go over there and listen to it from there. It's macroviewnews.com. The first post to come up on that page will be tonight's episode. You'll find resources related to tonight's episode. You'll find links to the the, the first two parts of this five-part series. And you'll find links to resources discussed during our commercial breaks and other resources that relate to the episode. So lastly, but definitely not least, and in fact, most importantly, um, actually before I get to that, while you're on our, our show page, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can, you can find the, the links to our social media pages right there on our page. And lastly, but definitely not least, and, and most importantly, in fact, don't forget to share us with your friends and family, and don't forget to share us on social media or wherever you can, and help me to spread the logic of liberty. I hope everybody's having a wonderful evening or whenever you happen to be listening to tonight's episode. Tune in tomorrow night. Take care, folks. You've been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific Time to help spread the logic of liberty.